Hello friends, we are back after a slight little break with episode 122 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. My name is Eric Nance and you have tuned in to the Mostly Weekly podcast where we talk about the latest happenings and great resources shared on the Our Weekly project. And as I said, my name is Eric Nance and I am pleased to be joined as always by my compatriot and partner in our related goodness here, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Eric. It was it was nice to have a, a week off last week. I know we all missed the highlights, but we're excited to be back at it this week. Yes, with anything in the open source world, sometimes these things happen. But yeah, we are back in the swing of things once again. And that is, of course, thanks to our curator for this week's issue for week 20 of 2023. That is the esteemed Sam Palmer, a good friend of mine, a fellow compatriot in the life sciences industry and he had tremendous help as always from our fellow our weekly team members and contributors like all of you around the world of your poll requests and other mentions of our weekly itself so let's get right into the flow of things so to speak and this first highlight i thought did sound kind of familiar and in fact it is this is actually another win for continuity on this podcast because way back well i'm not sure way back but episode 82 we actually covered the genesis of this package called GG Flowchart, which has been authored by Nicola Rennie, who has been a frequent contributor to the highlights these days, with her latest blog post introducing the aforementioned GG Flowchart. And this is a package that fits right in to the ggplot2 ecosystem as it's built right upon it to help you as an R user create in a very simple way a flowchart or decision tree or whatever you want to call it very quickly with minimal upfront effort. So how does this work exactly? Well, you've seen flowcharts before. They might be used to s describe maybe a, a data science pipeline like you might see in the R for Data Science book. You might see some of these that talk about sophisticated machine learning pipelines or perhaps even an architect of a system in fact, something I've been doing lately is making flowcharts of, you know, the, the processes and the components around a Shiny app. Maybe it's ingesting data from an external source. Maybe then I'm serving up an API for a model fit and kind of bringing that all together. Well, if you want to create that in R, GG Flowchart will get you right up and running quite quickly. Where the only requirement you really need on top of having the package installed itself is a simple data frame of your edges, so to speak, where they start from and where they end. Once you have that, you feed it right into the ggflowchart functions, and there you go. You've got yourself a very clear, very easy to navigate flowchart. And you do get a little bit of customization if you like. If you want to add an additional data frame for the nodes information, maybe you want to customize a label or a few other aesthetics. But honestly, it is very much a get up and running quickly kind of package. And Nicola, as always in her blogs post, uh, does a great example here. In fact, the situation that inspired this package was a, I believe, a Tidy Tuesday data analysis, or actually no, it was a 30-day chart challenge, where she took the infamous Goldilocks story and did a decision tree of how the porridge decisions were made, so to speak. Um, so it was a, a great relatable example. And one thing that as I was reading through this again and getting you know familiar with it, 
As you might ask yourself, you may have seen other efforts in the ggpod2 ecosystem that give you these network type layouts such as the tidygraph and gggraph uh, packages offered by thomas lynn peterson where i think ggflowchart fits in the picture is that if you have a small number of nodes you just want to get a chart a decision tree or flowchart up very quickly it's hard to beat the simplicity of ggflowchart now, if you find yourself in a situation where you have a whole bunch of nodes and you want to customize the algorithm behind the layout of how these nodes are organized, then you might have to dig into some of the other packages in this space where you'll get more customization through the likes of iGraph. Or if you want a more interactive version of it, Viz Network, which I've had a few, uh, let's just say, uh, interesting uh, battles with as i've been getting to know that better but boy if you're fine with a static flow chart this one like i said gg flow chart is hard to beat and i think is a great way to supercharge the ways that you might do some additional visualizations for like i mentioned earlier maybe documenting a data processing pipeline machine learning pipeline just something quick and easy for the users to understand so like always, Nicole does a terrific job summarizing the, the features, getting you up and running quickly, as well as some of her plans for next steps of enhancement. So definitely worth checking out if you want to get that flowchart created with minimal effort. It was nice to see, you know, a familiar visual and, and like you, this did uh, spark some light bulbs. And, and I remembered that there was a previous blog post uh, about uh, Nicola's efforts developing this as I believe part of her Our Ladies Nairobi presentation, uh, which included live coding um, one of these these Goldilocks flowcharts, which is really cool that she was able to turn it into an R package for the rest of us to use. I, I actually found myself using ggplot2 the other day for the first time in a while. I guess I've been doing too much uh, interactive, shiny development work lately, but it was nice to get back to it. And, and I forgot how amazing and, and extensible it really is. And this is a, a nice little lightweight package for creating flowcharts. Its central function is called GG Flowchart, and it has a lot of arguments that are very similar to any other ggplot2 verb um, and, and aesthetic arguments like fill that allow you to essentially have certain nodes one color and, and certain nodes a different color depending on what group you want to pass to that argument um, the color argument uh, the, the the x nudge and the y nudge arguments set the width of the node boxes and the height of the node boxes respectively and one other cool argument uh, to that function is the horizontal argument which is a logical true or false and that allows you to either have a flow chart that's going from left to right or uh, if that argument is false, it'll be vertical. So the, the nodes will start at the top and flow uh, downward, which I believe is the default. And, and that's all of the examples that you'll see in this blog post, I believe, are, are sort of that vertical um, layout in terms of the decision tree. So again, you know, I think Nicola will, will tell you that um, there are some things in the works and uh, that it's a, a progress, a work in progress type of package. And there's a few things on the, the to-do list, but I think for, for simple, small use cases, especially this is a really easy one to get started with and get up and running very quickly um, with a small data frame. So I would highly recommend checking it out if building flowcharts is something that is on your to-do list. 
Yep, and another thing on my to-do list is um, at the end of the blog post, I must admit, this is one of the better-looking hex stickers I've ever seen. So, um, Nicola, if you're ever going to maybe print some of these out, you know, um, you might have a couple customers waiting for you because I have I have a little one at home who would really like this one because he's into bears of all sorts so that would be fun we're also very much into brown bear brown bear and there's there's three brown bears on this hex sticker so it would be a hit in our house as well so yes if these ever do go to print nicola please let us know yeah i'll be uh first in line or maybe mike will be first in line or we might fight each other for it well who knows (laughs) (laughs) start a bidding war oh yeah well you know there's a first for everything right bidding war for hex stickers you can't beat it Well, speaking of can't beat, I admit this next highlight is really up my alley lately with what I've been um, working on. And we're going to take a visit once again to reproducibility and also containerization technology to really supercharge that effort. Now, in our previous mentions of this, a lot of the focus has been on ensuring reproducibility so that A, you and your collaborators can be working from the same execution environment you know give or take a few minor differences um, for a say a data science pipeline maybe a shiny app development whatever have you and then also the ability for maybe you or someone else to be able to rerun that analysis later on perhaps way later on and ensuring that you're not surprised by you know, maybe updated packages in your R analysis or updated system libraries, that it is as close to a replica of that execution environment as possible. Now, that perspective is kind of like tacking it on at the end, maybe, so to speak. But why not opt into it from the very beginning for your actual development environment? And that's where Bruno Rodriguez, who is, again, another uh, frequent contributor to the R Weekly Highlights, has another fascinating blog post to talk about why you should consider using a containerized development environment with Docker for your next analysis project. So this is a topic near and dear to his heart, so to speak, because guess who's writing a book about reproducibility? And it is Bruno, of course, and he definitely mentions that in this post, which is definitely a valuable reference to understand a lot more of the thinking behind the practicalities and why this is important in general. Um, It's a terrific book. I highly recommend it. I full disclosure, I have, I have purchased my copy of it because I think it is that important in this ecosystem. So free advertising, Bruno, where's the check, baby? (laughs) Maybe later. Um, (laughs) We'll, we'll find out. We'll find out. But what is very interesting um, in this post here is that, He does include a very straightforward Docker file, which for those that aren't aware, is almost like the set of instructions, or you might say recipe, for how you want your container to be built, layer by layer by layer. And each of these containers has to start somewhere. And that's where in the Docker Hub registry or some other sources, you might find base images for you to choose from. And a lot of times for the R projects, we are very fortunate to have the Rocker project as providing a very solid set of images that contain R itself, maybe some additional packages, also even a server version of R Studio, the open source editor version, 
and frankly, much more. Now, one thing to note that I want to emphasize from Bruno's post here is that by default, when you base your Docker image or base your Docker file on a particular image, the shortcut is to use the quote-unquote latest version of that image available. But that could be an issue if you are really, really passionate and eager to have full reproducibility. That's where Bruno definitely calls out the idea of tagging that with a particular version. So for example, let's say you're using the latest version of our available now, 4.3, for your container image. You can put that as a tag from the image you're pulling from. And in that way, no matter how later in the game you are rerunning this container, you're always going to be using that version. So that is another huge step for reproducibility. And the other idea that I definitely like to see is that Bruno is using the Posit package manager, the open source uh, service that Posit provides, to install Linux binary versions of these packages. And for those who aren't aware, Docker containers like this are always going to be based on a Linux image of some sort. These are, this ain't your Windows, this ain't your Mac OS X, you have to go elsewhere for that. This is all Linux all the time, and boy, I love it. But in any event, using the binary uh, package manager service from Posit is one great way to speed up the package installation. But this is where Bruno taught me something I didn't know was possible with this, is that you can tag that package repository definition in your R profile with a specific date, meaning that every time then you rebuild this image, maybe you have, you're going on a new system and you have to pull this image back down, you're gonna follow the Docker file instructions. It is now going to use the same source for that CRAN-like repository at that snapshot in time as you did when you first started by specifying that date. That was a nugget to me. I didn't know that was possible with the Posit Package Manager. So that's really cool. Another approach you might take with this is for a lot of my Docker containers, I still use RMV because I really like the idea of having that manifest of package definitions ready to go so that I can, in theory, use that same repository even outside of Docker if I have another system that for every reason can't use that container, but I want to use that same set of packages, I can use RM to kind of have my cake and eat it too. Each approach is fine. I was just offering up another alternative. Now, for what's really cool about this is that there are what I'm going to call the OG editors out there since they've been available since what seems like the dawn of the age of Unix and Linux. And Bruno is very much an Emacs power user. Much respect, Bruno. Emacs is awesome. I have a colleague at work who only uses Emacs and rips me to this day for using our studio and other editors, and we have lots of fun around that. But guess what? You can throw Emacs in the container just like Bruno does here. Or if you're on, quote-unquote, the other side. Now, again, we're all friends here. But you could do the exact same thing with a Vim and NeoVim setup, but it's all very flexible, and you can have your your tricked out version of Emacs or Vim complete with importing your own dot files for your custom configurations, which is another nice touch that Bruno adds here. Okay, I could obviously go on and on about this, but the last thing I'll mention here is that there are other ways to have the container-like functionality for your dev environment 
one area I've been looking at lately is Visual Studio Code, as I've been doing a lot of multi-language projects, and it's just hard to beat the integrations of, say, blending an R and Python project all in the one with VS Code. Well, they have what's called a dev container uh, feature, which, appropriate enough, has a new capability called Features, which let you specify little, say, snippets of text to say, I want to install R, or I want to install um, Hugo for my blog down container, or I want to install Quarto. And that way you don't necessarily have to create a Docker file. Now, again, that may not be for everybody because that is, in essence, tunnel vision on using VS Code itself, which may be fine for a particular project. But I do really appreciate Bruno's method here because this approach with the specific Docker file, you can use anywhere, anytime that you have a container runtime available to you. Doesn't even have to be Docker. You could use Podman as well, which is beyond the scope of this post, but something I'm looking at quite closely here. So my, my takeaway is why wait until the end when you can have the same benefits of reproducibility in your dev environment and be able to use this throughout your different projects and just add a little bit on top each time, depending on your needs. So Bruno has already established himself as a very key thought leader in this space. And yes, the book is highly recommended, but this post is a great way to illustrate to you just why you might want to make this investment. And honestly, I think it's pretty straightforward to get started. And if you have any experience like mine, once you go containers, you never look back, at least for me. So Mike, I'm not sure if I sold you on it, but uh, what did you think of Bruno's post here? You've absolutely sold sold me on this. And uh, I'll be honest, I, I thought the image of a FedEx box with the, the caption, how to ship a computer, uh, was a spam ad in the middle of the blog, and I could not figure <laughs> out how to get rid of it. Um, that joke did go straight over my head for a second there, but it, it clicked shortly thereafter, and it is a, a brilliant image to sort of caption this whole blog post on. And some projects can take you down a rabbit hole of software installation. You know, I was working on a pretty intricate Quarto PDF report uh, recently and getting deep into LaTeX and Lua for customizing a cover page and a title page. And it involved me installing some software libraries that I know I will never use again, right? And we've all been there on a particular project. I mean, it could even be in our project specifically where you're installing a few packages um, that are, are really specialized that, that you know you'll, you'll never necessarily use again. But if you are installing them straight onto your machine, they will, they will bog down your machine, right? They're going to take up a little bit of space. Um, so it, instead of bogging down my own machine like that with lots of software installs, every time I go down one of these rabbit holes, I could do this work in an isolated, containerized Docker dev environment. And that's a really great way to go nowadays. Um, I think probably a few years ago, there wasn't as much reference material or, or guides or examples or even blog posts like this out there. So so Docker did feel a little bit sort of like the, the wild, wild west, especially to some of the folks that were, you know, not necessarily 
computer science majors or, or not necessarily, you know, uh, super well versed in, in infrastructure like myself, um, not necessarily coming from that uh, environment, but more coming from the, the math side of the equation of, of data science and then having to learn these other skills on the fly. So that's all to say that I really appreciate Bruno taking the time to, to sort of slowly walk us through his Docker file and, and all of the steps involved in setting up the container environment for the purpose of generating a Quarto report. And I do think that that getting started with uh, containerized development environments is a lot easier nowadays than it used to be, or, or I should say a lot more accessible. And I do know that there is, is someone else who has done quite a few streams uh, on YouTube uh, involving showcasing his uh, dev container environment within VS Code that uh, are a fantastic resource as well for those looking for some extra resources here. And uh, in case that one went over anybody's head, that is Eric on the Shiny Dev Series uh, stream that you can take a look on YouTube. I'm sure there is plenty of material. I've, I've seen it myself. There's plenty of material that showcases his uh, dev container setup in in VS Code. So another great resource there. And there's also a link in Bruno's post uh, to a GitHub repository containing all of the materials, including the Docker file involved in setting up the dev environment behind this post, uh, which is is fantastic. So absolutely a, a great one to, to dig into. I'm looking forward to getting my own copy of Bruno's book as well. I think it's going to be a phenomenal resource for the community in ensuring that we work hard to develop reproducible R code. Yeah, it, I, I'm with you. In the early days of containers, um, there it was not much at all. You were you were kind of on your own, so to speak, unless you knew you had some friends in, in IT or others in the open source sector that were knee, knee deep into it already that could guide you along the way. But I think now we're seeing a lot more excellent materials that are not necessarily geared towards the 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 not necessarily geared towards the super super power it dev devs out there this is geared towards data scientists telling you why this is helpful how to get started quickly and where you can go to even level up your knowledge more so i mean i can appreciate just frankly how much effort bruno's been putting into this resource but again he's not alone there are definitely others in this space as well and i may have mentioned in one of those aforementioned streams that you mentioned mike but on this very machine that i'm recording this humble little podcast on which is admittedly a pretty powerful one um there's no trace of r on here there's no trace of python on here it's all containers because i wanted to keep as you mentioned earlier I wanted to keep this box as pristine as possible. So when I'm doing this very show or I'm doing those live streams or those conference presentations, I don't have a weird surprise when I boot up my system that something got updated behind my back and I didn't realize it. So I am very strict about it. But again, containers are a great way to put that that particular project in its own silo, so to speak, and it's going to have its own merry way. You want Java on there? Throw Java on there. I've had lots of issues of our Java on the working system. So if I can put it on a container and not have it, you know, pollute my home system, I'm happy for it. So that's another quite it's a nice benefit as well. Yes, pollute was a great adjective for uh, speaking about our Java. <laughs> Thank you. Ooh, I'm probably going to get some feedback about that. 
Shout out to any of you out there that had to use R Java for the older generation of packages in R that imported Excel files. Oof, the pain, absolute pain. I was yes. looking back some old code back and I think it was another hire. We were talking about like old code reproducibility and I still remember loading that package and I had to put this flag about the memory limit because if I didn't do it, everything crashed. So you've been warned. I will also just shout out uh, one more thing again. Dirk Edelbutel's R2U uh, base R image. Is that, is that That's do I have exactly that correct? right. Yep, yep. Is incredible uh if you are if your project involves an r developing an r package whether that be making your own r package or a golem app which is an r package something like that uh, check out that r2u image because it will greatly reduce the amount of uh text that you'll have to include in your docker file it will handle a lot of stuff for you and your docker image will be a lot smaller than it would be otherwise in my experience and lightning fast to build yeah, there's lots of great tools in this space. And, and also shout out to our, our good friend, Peter Salimus, who's also written some great narrative about using container tech and his shiny app development. There's lots of lots of material to choose from here. Where, Like you said, Mike, a few years ago, there was just nothing but crickets out there for how we could apply this. Now there's, there's a boatload of possibilities. It's awesome. Yes, we're getting some documentation. It's awesome. Oh, yes, I brought up the word shiny, right, Mike? Well, uh, we couldn't have teed this up any better because this is right up an area that Mike and I are actively working on as we speak. And our last highlight is the recent, one of the recent recordings that have been shared from Absalon Shiny Conference that took place in March earlier this year. This is from Colin Fay's keynote where it was titled, Production is Like Ultra Running, Brutal, Ungrateful, but worth every step. Yeah, if that doesn't get you intrigued, I don't know what does. So this was an amazing keynote. I remember watching it live, um, getting a lot of, you know, it had a mix of everything. We're going to touch on a little bit. Definitely Colin shared a very personal story that informed his opinions on this and how it relates to his adventures getting into R and then getting into running R and building shiny apps in production. I'll turn it over to Mike in a little bit. I want to give you my, my takeaways first on this is that I often will still encounter some in a different part of the organization that are still skeptical about how R can be used in production. Now, I'll be honest, I think we're kind of past that stage, but the key point is that there's nothing really inherently that different from R in this space than anything else. It takes discipline. It takes a good workflow. But there's no magic bullet to make building production pipelines in R easy. But there are steps you can take to make it more repeatable and to give you a better start on that journey. Now, of course, Colin is knee-deep in this in the Shiny space with Golem, one of our favorite packages in the Shiny ecosystem to get your app a very robust package infrastructure to prepare you for production more easily. The tools are there. Maybe they weren't as much there years ago, but you should definitely, definitely take advantage of getting you up and running to that production state in a, in a much more smoother way 
than maybe if you're building all the tooling yourself to get to that point. So I, there's some great discussions with Colin about how he's handled that situation. And I think the other, the other nugget I have is just honestly trust the process. There is a lot to do. There's a lot of things you need to check for. But once you go through this once, you're going you're gonna to take a lot of learnings, practically speaking, on this. For me, a lot of times, the things that I did not account for, that Colin is a great example of, is the infamous, it works on my machine. Well, not necessarily after you deploy it. He has a fun story in the, present, in the keynote about how he deployed a production Shiny app to their client server. And it couldn't hit an API that the app depended on. But no one knew until after they deployed it, oh yeah, that, that server's been sandboxed. It's not going to call out to that API. These things happen. So once you go through some of these things, you kind of know what to check for as you're beginning that, that journey to production deployments. That's just one small microcosm of it. But a lot of this is going to, yes, be painful at first, but... I think it doesn't have to be as daunting as it as it appears to be. I think a disciplined approach and making sure you have all the areas that you need to have covered are addressed in some way, whether it's testing, whether it's knowing your deployment target and knowing your audience too is also hugely important. Colin touches on many of these topics in the keynote. And yes, I think it is required viewing for anybody that's even just thinking about going on this journey. It is riveting and so many great nuggets to share. But Mike, I, I, I'm not, I don't want to be in suspense any longer. What were your favorite parts of Colin's keynote here? Yeah, it was an incredibly inspiring talk. It's a real comeback story. Uh, you know, it, it starts out pretty serious. You know, Colin was in, in a a hospital and a coma for 24 hours and essentially told he was never going to be able to run again, if I remember correctly. Uh, and of course, he has since rehabilitated and is back to running uh, these incredible ultra marathon races. And he uses you know the concept of these ultra marathon races as an analogy to a lot of different programming hurdles that we face on a day-to-day -day basis, as you know well, uh, Eric. So he talked about uh, one thing interesting to me is that he has a three-page list of things he brings uh, whenever he does one of these races now. And it's probably uh, the result of learning things the hard way. And this list is is for handling things like cases of, of getting blisters and, and other different uh, adversities that he'll face during these particular marathons. Uh, so to ensure that he is better prepared for them. Um, and he made that analogy to programming. He, he built that shiny app that, like you said, worked great in testing. When deployed to production, it, it failed and they found out it was because the server wasn't connected to the internet and it couldn't communicate with an external API that the app depended on. I believe we had a fairly recent blog post or, or highlight in our weekly might have been the HTTR package that, that talked about being able to test for an internet connection and adding that to, to your test. So, so maybe we'll have to, to pull that one out and, and from the archives and see if we can link to that in, in the show notes. Um, but 
for for lack of a better word, Colin says stuff will happen uh, when you send an app to production. <laughs> Trying to keep it PG here for you, Eric. And, and the more that you can spend time thinking and preparing about how to build an application with a solid foundation, the better. Right? In his slideshow, he, he has a picture of a sandcastle and talking about how some of the early shiny apps he made uh, were about as sturdy as a sandcastle. And he says it doesn't matter if you're using Gollum or Rhino or, or some other framework for your shiny app development. You have to always expect the unexpected and sort of have this mindset. And and I believe that's a mindset that that I have as a shiny developer. Maybe subconsciously, it's not it's not something that I've necessarily articulated before, but it's it's very much a mindset that I, I carry with me, and it's very much the result I think from just having to face these hurdles time and time again and, and seeing something new pop up. Pretty much on every single project that I have to really uh, carefully think through and try to safeguard for against or safeguard against, excuse me, uh, for pro- for the next project that I'm doing um, for for shiny work. So, last thing I'll I'll call out is that I love the fact that during this whole entire talk, Colin is wearing a shirt that says "Rule Number One: It's Always a Typo." Uh, that resonated hard as well. So, uh, absolutely a great talk. Put put your headphones on, take a listen to it. It's it's right there on YouTube, um, along with all the other great talks from the Absalon uh, Posit R Studio Conf 2023, and uh, check it out yourself. Yeah, and and you know if Bruno can do this, so can we. But a lot of the principles that Mike just mentioned, we are going to cover in a lot more detail in our upcoming workshop at PositConf later this year, because we have, as Mike said, uh, between the two of us, we have a lot of stories we can share, a lot of examples where we've learned the hard way about preparing for this important stage in your shiny app uh, life cycle of getting the production. So we will. Uh, mention it once again. You can go to posit.co and search for the Posit Conference. There will be a sign up there if you're interested in learning more about this in Chicago later this year. No, I I, I meant the free advertising is over here. But in any event, uh, Colin is is amazing, an amazing speaker as always. Like I said, I went I ran through the gamut of emotions from his personal journey up until, yep, I've had that happen to me, or yep, I've I've learned that the hard way, and yes, the typo. I had a typo in my Viz Network battle that I just solved yesterday that took me hours to find. Maybe it'll be easier for all of you that are seasoned pros at this, but sometimes it gets the best of us. But when I found it, I did my little victory dance because it was like the last hurdle I needed to deploy this darn version to, to, to the next production pipeline. So it happens, folks. We're human. Yep, I, I I hear you. I just uh, finally was able to remove a, a bunch of different browser statements uh, for debugging purposes in a, in a shiny app and, and had a huge win there. So yeah, we're always fighting the good fight out here. That's a great plug. Please join us in, in Chicago for the workshop where hopefully we can help you get out in front of some of the hurdles that we had to learn the hard way. Yes, but Mike, let's not talk about hard stuff anymore. Let's talk about the easy stuff, which is looking at the rest of this R Weekly issue because there is so much great goodness of our content that Sam has put together for us. So we'll take a couple of minutes to talk about our additional finds. And I'm going to give a great uh, kind of like congratulations and spotlight to the one-year anniversary of the Diffify project from Jumping Rivers, which, by the way, is used now in every R Weekly issue going forward. If you want to look at in the updated packages section of each issue, 
for every package that's mentioned, we have a link directly to Diffify that shows you the upgraded changes between the version previous and that new version. So Diffify is a, is a great project that they have a lot of plans to make even better this year with some backend API functionality and some more UI enhancements, but it's a terrific project. If you haven't used it before, definitely give it a go. If you're wondering just what happened between that latest version of dplyr versus its previous version, or maybe it's a package that doesn't get a lot of attention in terms of like detailed news files or commit is in a GitHub repository. This will work for any package that's deployed on CRAN. So really, really awesome uh, tool. So congrats to the, the friends at Jumping Rivers for making it to one year with Diffify. And hopefully there are many more years to come for this great project. That's a great call out. I found the risk assessment app uh, from the R Validation Hub was voted the best shiny app at ShinyConf 2023. And I took a tour of that app. I was able to, to log in a, as a user to that app. It's a really clean, nice looking app that essentially allows you to type in the name of an R package and take a look at some metrics about that package that have associated levels of risk that sort of aggregate up to a, a singular risk score um, that is based on documentation available for that package, the number of tests, code coverage, things like that. So it was a fun one to play around with. I think it's a, I think it's a really good tool. I think it's a really good concept um, because there are many, many R packages out there. Some are well-maintained and well-documented and well-tested, um, and some are not but are being used in in you know very serious production environments so there is a higher level of risk associated with packages that that aren't thoroughly tested i don't think that's a very controversial um, thing to say but it's nice that we have a, a ui that sort of puts some of these statistics right out there in front of us uh, i will shout out uh, the package that, that i have on cran called migrate uh, for building state transition matrices is low risk so i was very excited to see that <laughs> very excited to see that we got a score of low risk but I, if your organization is is interested in obviously using uh, open source r packages and has some concerns whether that be regulatory or, or otherwise around ensuring that the risk tolerance of, of the r packages that you use is is on the lower side this might be a tool that could help you and of course, I'm going to throw out a second Shiny highlight as well. If you are a Hugging Face user and a Shiny developer, you can now host Shiny apps on Hugging Face, which is the open source AI platform, I believe, uh, thanks to their new partnership with Posit. It looks like it's a little easier to deploy Shiny for Python apps because Hugging Face is really Python native. Um, but it is also possible to deploy in, in a Shiny app written in R on Hugging Face as well with just a couple of extra steps. Yeah, I, I came completely out of left field when I saw that announcement, but I'll be eager to try it out as well. And it looks like Hugging Face has a lot of interesting resources. But yeah, that was a terrific issue. Great call outs there. And of course, there's a boatload of additional content that you can find at R Weekly every single week. The, book, the website is at rweekly.org. And if you want to get in touch with helping out with the project, 
Well, first, if you're interested in becoming a curator for us, we definitely have a few openings. So please uh, send us a note on the GitHub repository if you'd like to become a curator. But if you find that great resource, blog post, new package, great video, or a great conference presentation that you want the rest of the R community to know about, we are just a pull request away at the very top of the page. Everything's in all markdown all the time, so it's just a quick, easy edit. And our Curator of the Week will get that into the issue right away for you for the next week's issue. And also, we love hearing from you directly as well. You can get in touch with Mike and myself using the podcast uh, contact page, which is in the show notes of this episode. This podcast is available, I think, wherever you can find your favorite podcasts out there. And also, we give you a nice capability if you want to get one of those new podcast apps, such as Podverse or Fountain or Castomatic. You've got an easy way to send us a boost directly in the app. It's easy to get started. We have all the details in the show notes if you want to send us a little fun extra podcast points, so to speak. But also, we are on social media. I am still sporadically on Twitter with at the Rcast. And I'm more on Mastodon these days with at our podcast at podcastindex.social. And Mike, where can people find you? Likewise, on Twitter at Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K. And on Mastodon at Mike underscore Thomas at Fostodon.org. Awesome stuff. Well, that's been another terrific episode as always. And we will be back with another edition of our weekly highlights, hopefully next week.